Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. Okay, this week, <laughs> this one is crazy. This uh, this week we are talking to Jake Radin, who is, you've seen the name, I'm sure, a million times. He was a legendary session guitarist. He was a legendary producer, songwriter, you name it, Jake Radin has done it. He, uh, in the late 70s, early 80s, he was in that band Airplay with David Foster. I mean, think about people like Steve Lukather, and that's kind of Jay's career as well. He uh, he wrote and produced a lot of stuff you would know. For instance, there's, you know, there's Al Jarreau. That's why we're listening to Morning right here. I, <laughs> I love this song. In fact, I ask him about this song, and we go deep kind of in the weeds for the first 10 or 15 minutes or so. But it's fascinating because you really get to lo- know what Jay's whole process is. Some of you guys who asked me about... Uh, that want to know more about gear and more about more about like the technical side of all of this, you're gonna love those first 15 minutes. Anyway, it goes from there. I, I don't even really know how to tell you what all we talked about because it was so sprawling. Jay is nocturnal, so we did this conversation in the middle of the night, and I think because of that, there was sort of a looseness. I mean, that's to me anyway. This this just felt like a couple of guys shooting the breeze over the phone one night. That's how I view it anyway. Now, if you've seen the Hired Gun documentary, which if you haven't, you need to because it's great. Jay's on there and he tells that hilarious story about how he went to take a dump and that's when he wrote George Benson's Turn Your Love Around. He recalls that in here too. He's famous for the Peg guitar solo on by Steely Dan's Peg. Anyway, that's an example of who Jay is. He's no frills, tells it like it is, idiosyncratic. The guy has seen and done it all. We get to know him and some of the things he's really into near the end of this conversation. I just, we just went and went. And some things I would ask him and he didn't remember if he played on it or not. So sometimes we we cut those things out because they didn't go anywhere. Sometimes we left them in because they're hilarious. You be the judge. Anyway, this is a couple of guys one is a legend and one is me talking about their entire career. I I guarantee you this has to be the mother of all Jay Graydon interviews. Okay? He called me from his home in LA. Okay. Well, there's a... I mean, there are a million things we could talk about. And uh, we'll get to a few of them. But I want to know about the writing of Morning by Al Jarreau. Because that's one of just the happiest sort of cheesy but sort of beautiful songs I've ever heard and I love it and it was uh, I've been hoping to get you on here for a while but after I watched the Al Jarreau unsung episode about a week or two ago I thought I gotta try Jay one more time and now here we are so right. there's a lot of, I have a lot of questions about him in general but tell us about the creation of Morning in particular okay so David Foster got a deal to do a solo album in Japan not recorded in Japan, but for Japan release. Mm-hmm. So we were writing. David had set up. He had a 24-track and um, uh, just a cheesy board, but enough to bang out the stuff you know that we recorded there and then later add drums and all that, even though I'm not a big fan of overdubbing drums later. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that's what we did. And I came up with the guitar part and 
you know, just we're just fooling around, and as always, one of us comes up with something first, and it's usually David. So in this case, the guitar part started it. Mm. So the da 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 type yeah. part. Mm-hmm. Okay, that was the. I think that's the right rhythm. Anyway, that was the the beginning of the song. So it was written as an instrumental. And mm-hmm. David is just a man. He's a songwriting genius. He's got perfect pitch. Well, at least he did. He's lost it, which mm-hmm. happens when you get older. Mm-hmm. First, it starts getting off by a half step, and then it just goes. And it's like a terrible thing to have this mm-hmm. gift taken away that you're born with. But brain wiring changes, so that's mm-hmm. what happens. Yeah. Anyway, now I never, I didn't have perfect pitch. You're born with it. And you better get trained quick. If you do, if, you know, you need to be around music and a piano and somebody needs to teach you the name of the notes when you're very young. And there's a guy named Rick Beato who's online with excellent, you know, YouTube videos mm-hmm. on teaching all kinds of stuff musically. And one of it, when his son was born from day one, even before he was born, he'd put a ghetto blaster on his mm-hmm. wife's stomach and, you know, play music for a couple hours a day. And then as soon as the kid was born, he was surrounded by music. As soon as he could get up on a piano bench, Rick taught him the notes and so forth. And mm-hmm. the kid's perfect pitch is off the map. Wow. There's degrees of it. And his is to the point where he actually has something called absolute pitch, where he knows... If it's A440, A441, A442. Really? Oh, see, he's a freak. But now for the weird part, he doesn't really care about music that much. <laughs> but he's got this amazing gift. You know, he does play oboe in an orchestra, but, you know, he just doesn't live it like his dad does, you know? Right. right. Anyway, okay, so back to the, st- the song. So Foster is such a creative cat, and... So he starts coming up with the chord changes. I remember mm-hmm. we wrote it in B flat, and um, that's where I played the lick. And so uh, as the chord changes were coming and the melody was coming along with it, then I turn into an editor. Mm. When David goes to another section, uh, after he's on it for eight bars, I'll go, that's really good, or let's, find, let's try something else. Mm-hmm. Here's an idea, I'll come up with a chord or two and a melody. And that's how it works with mm-hmm. him and I. We, I'm mostly his editor at that point because he's just so creative and so mm-hmm. quickly. This tune didn't take long to write, maybe an hour. And it was instrumental, like I say. Yeah. And we used the Yamaha, it's a, a little synthesizer, like a four-octave keyboard, I think, that has this great piccolo patch that we used for the melody, and it's also used for the solo on the Giro album. And we'll mm. get to that later. But okay. So it was played instrumentally. So I think we just played with the click track and recorded it in like one pass. Mm. And then it was on to whatever else we were writing. So that was stage one. Mm-hmm. And I don't. I think David played synth bass on the instrumental version. I don't even know if this album in Japan is available anymore. But knowing 
that we're in a world of free music, which is a right. joke. Yeah. Somebody's had to have uploaded it. Right. So there's the instrumental version. So I'm producing Al Jarreau, and I thought, you know, this tune would work. The only drag is it's kind of rangy, mm. because it's an instrumental tune. Who cares about range? You know, the melody can be played on uh, however many octaves you want, mm -hmm. you know. But anyway, so we moved the, the key. I knew Al's highest note comfortably is a G, but it sounded too low. That would put the song in the key of C. It sounded too low in the verses and not quite happy enough. Mm. So... I said, Al, we're going to have to do this in the key of D, which is going to make the highest note an A, but I won't force you. Well, first of all, I didn't know his falsetto uh, wasn't very good. It's mm. weak. There's too much of a change in his voice, and that note needed to be strong. So I said, look, we'll do that last line on another day after we finish the rest of the vocal, okay? Mm -hmm. So... We finished all the rest of the vocal, and when I do vocals, you know, we don't stay on one track. I've got a list of paper with the lyric written out and seven lines to the left of the lyric, horizontal lines. Mm -hmm. And above each of those lines is a track number. For example, 16 through 22 or 23 or whatever. It's usually mm -hmm. seven tracks that I'd leave open on the tape um, in that area. And then I would, as each pass was being sung, I'd give each line a grade. And I'll punch in a lot. And if you don't know what that means, that means he may sing a line that I like. And then the next line, well, I'll let, I'll let him go for a while. Mm. But if it's not good stuff, then we'll go back and I say, look, I'm going to punch in right before the word whatever. Right. So he'd sing along, and then I'd punch in at that spot. Okay, more mm -hmm. complicated than that, but it doesn't matter. <laughs> so after all the seven tracks are full, and I see nines, nine and a halfs, and tens for each line, I know that I can now combine those seven tracks to one master track. Mm. So I go through the tune line by line, and sometimes word, an individual mm -hmm. word I'll grab from one track, and I map out, like, let's say the first line's track 17, the second line's track 20. They all go to a new track, and I bounce those over as per my map, and after I'm done with that, there's the vocal on one track, okay? Uh-huh. Now, I said, Al... You want a night off before we do this one line that's the last line in the bridge that has to do where the lyric is, um, and this is his best lyric line ever, reach out and touch the face of God, mm -hmm. something like that. Yeah. So, yeah, man, I mean, it's, that's the best lyric line he ever wrote. Mm -hmm. So I said, look, man, I know this is going to be hard. You're going to have to sing it full voice after I realized his falsetto wasn't going to cut it. So I, he says, I'm going to give you three passes. Mm. And I said, just really concentrate on getting that last high A in tune. Mm -hmm. So we did it three times. And one, after the first pass, I said, hey, man, 
just wait 10 minutes, you know. Yeah. I don't want you to hurt yourself. <laughs> so I wait as long as you want. However long you waited, then we did the second pass, and then we did the third pass, you know, with a break. And I don't know how many passes, it, which pass was the one, but he did nail it on one yeah. pass. He nailed the whole line. So I bounced that into the master vocal track, yeah. and we were done with the vocal. Wow. So okay. that's, that's how that all went down. Interesting. I'm curious, okay. when you're in the room, and I assume it's Al who writes the line, Morning Mr. Cheerio, does everyone kind of smile? Does everyone think, ooh, that's good? What's the vibe in the room? Because it's not, a, you know, I can't think of another song ever that says well, that with a straight Al, face. You know? Al writes, you know, Al goes off and writes lyrics. And I got to say, man, for the most part, his lyrics are dumb. Every <laughs> once in a while, he'll get onto a good idea, but... Uh-huh. I'm really surprised that, um, you know, and I have actually said, man, you've got to change this section here. Come up with something else. Right. But even so, most, you know, there's some parts of the lyrics in the songs that are always at least okay, mm-hmm. you know. Anyway, so, okay. you know, he writes okay. the lyrics on his own. Mm-hmm. And when he did write that line, I said, you know, I thought to myself, are we going to have copyright problems? <laughs> but, at the, but at the same time, I'm thinking, well, maybe we would even be able to use this song as a jingle. True. Good maybe point. they'll hear it, or maybe, you know, maybe I sent it to them. Yeah. Nothing ever panned out with that. But, okay. You know. Okay. And, uh, yeah, I wonder what guys like you and David Foster think when you, he comes in and he sings the line, Morning Mr. Cheerio. Are you, do you, does it even register or is it like, no, oh, that's great. I like that. That sounds, because it's so cute, you know, and you don't think of great music as being cute very often. So I was just curious what the thinking was. I, you know, at that particular point in time, I didn't care as long as at least something in the lyric was really good and there was some kind of message or whatever, I'd let the corny stuff go. Mm. You know, when I when when I do vocals with Al, when I work with anybody, there's nobody in the room but who's allowed to be in the mm-hmm. studio. There's no mm-hmm. outsiders. You know, David wasn't there. There's no reason for him to be there. I'm the producer. True. He doesn't care, and he knows I'm going to nail it. Right. He knows I work singers really hard. Right. So does he. You know. Yeah. Before the okay. days of auto tune and melodyne. Right. Right. Okay. Uh, so, my other favorite song on that album is Trouble in Paradise, by the way. And you co-wrote that one, too. I love that song. When it appears your love is finally on the line And you can't hold it back much longer And when it seems as though you're running out of time That's the time you should be strong Burning alone, that's cold as ice. Go out and 
with Greg Matheson and Trevor Veach. I don't know who either of those guys are. Well, Greg Matheson, we grew up together, and we met in college, and we've been like brothers ever since. Mm. I still talk to Greg three or four days a week, and I helped him get in the studios, and then, you know, he became a first-call studio piano player, and then he moved on, also did a lot of arranging, Mm. and then became a record producer, and he had a lot of hits and a good run. I wondered if that was that. I've seen his name, and I wondered if it was the same guy. Okay. That's him. Yeah, okay. Anyway, to finish up morning, the same synthesizer solo that David played on the original uh, instrumental version, he played on Al's version, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. He didn't want to spend the time to sit there and write it out, so... Jerry Hay, another guy with Perfect Pitch, mm-hmm. he called Jerry and said, hey, man, will you do me a favor and write this out for me? So Jerry came by about an hour before we played the solo, and he's sitting in the, in the big room, and, and David and I are in the control room, and Jerry has got a cassette machine and earphones on, and he's listening to the original, and with Perfect Pitch, no problem. He just had to transpose it two whole tones from B flat up to D. Mm. So he's just writing it out as he hears it. I mean, he wrote the thing out in about eight minutes. Mm. And then we thanked him, he split, Mm -hmm. and then David played it in a couple of passes. He had it nailed. You know, David's a good reader. He studied classical when he was young. Yeah. And so he played the solo. Now, David never thought he was a jazzer. And I said... If you don't think you're a jazzer, that solo you just played is a jazz solo. Mm -hmm. Quit thinking you're not a jazzer. You Mm -hmm. are. And then we did the, I can't remember if the strings are real on that song. I think they are. We did a bunch of synth overdubs, and after the original tracking date, Jeff Beccaro plays that groove so Uh, good. Nice. After the original tracking date, David's part was sloppy, and I'm like a perfectionist. So we fixed that first, and I actually rebuilt the track back up from the drums up. Steely Dan did that a lot, too. Okay. On Peg, for example, they Uh cut the tune ten times with ten different rhythm sections, and they finally found a drummer they liked with the they liked the feel, which is Rick Murata. Right. And that that uh, his hi-hat groove in that tune is like his personal groove. Amazing. And they built it up from there. They just started with the drums and all over from the beginning. Wow. So anyway, David came over, you know, I punched in a bunch of times to get his Rhodes part perfect and of course he's giving me shit all the time like man what you know Mm what that was fine i said come on man you know me i want it tight and i want it to feel good right i want it all so (laughs) we got it and then i put abraham on and uh you know redid abe's part and i redid the guitar well i hadn't played the guitars yet i played after those two things were on you know then okay yeah that's it for that okay cool one thing I was curious about is obviously, you know, um, turn your love around. You got the love, you got the power, but you just don't understand. 
Big hit with George Benson. Similar situation a little bit with Al where he's starting to trans... He's trying. He's starting to go from jazz to pop. Maybe there's some issues there with his fan base. I don't know. But one thing I was curious about is you co-write that song with Lukather. You guys are obviously buddies. Really Why, close. Yeah. Another guy I'm really close with. Have you, were you ever considered to be in... I, I should say, I read his book about a year ago and I don't remember it very well. But And I didn't know I was going to be talking to you when I did. But were you ever considered to be in Toto? And then my other question is... No. Have you, are you... Is there why why are you not playing with Quincy Jones as much as he was playing with Quincy Jones? I was pretty much done doing record dates uh, by the time Quincy was producing Michael Jackson and the like. Okay. I was yeah, I was pretty much done. I was done. I was producing full time. Okay. And by the way, the only time I had a shot at producer of the year and engineer of the year was the year and two more nominations is when Thriller was up for everything. <laughs> I was a seat filler man. <laughs> no kidding, I remember that. Bad night. timing, <laughs> you know. Right, right. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, obviously, you and Lukather don't need to be in the same band unless it was, you know, unless you wanted to be. But so well, that there's was no the, reason. There's no yeah. reason for two guitars in that right. band. Right. Okay. So yeah. Okay. So the story okay. goes with Benson. I got called by Tommy LaPuma, who was an A&R guy at Warner's at the time, and he'd produced Jiro, and he produced Benson. Hmm. Anyway, Benson had already had hits, and he was already kind of, you know, he was in the pop thing, mm -hmm. but not totally, still mm -hmm. at his foot in jazz, and he always will. You know, he's an right. unbelievable jazz guitarist. I mean, the cat's one of my idols. He's yeah. just ridiculously talented. Right. And he's such a great singer. And the other thing is, he's mu as much of a perfectionist as I am. Oh, really? So when I worked him hard for the vocals, there was one time he said, no, man, that I can sing that line better after I put the vocal together. Really? And I said, man, well, okay, let's, let's work on it. And he yeah. did. Okay. So... I him. love George, man. Yeah, me too. Yeah, we, I still talk to him every once in a while. He's a great. He's a good friend of Ray Parker's too. Yeah. And the three of us have been planning to hook up and to hang out. Nice. But anyway, here's how the tune was went down. So Lapuma called me up, and he said, "We're doing a collection album, like a mm -hmm. greatest hits, right? And we need a single. But the problem is George is going on the road and like five or like two weeks or whatever, and we only have a little bit of time, you know. And I said, well, I'll, and look, man, I'll take a shot at writing a tune. 
and you know, of course, they wanted me to produce it too. And so, for the first two days, I had nothing. I mean, I'm trying to come up. When you sit down and write a tune, man, it's just not automatic that it's going to be a really good song. Yeah. You know, and especially mm-hmm. with pressure on, that's never good. Yeah. You know, tunes just, I'll get an idea in my head. It's actually better if I don't get the idea when I'm playing uh, guitar or piano, and I mostly write on piano because if I use complex chords, I want to know what the bass note is that I'm going to use for the chord, so... I write on piano. So hmm. then I was taking a, uh, I, I was popping a deuce, man. I was taking a <laughs> Once <dunk>. again. <laughs> right. That's your happy place. <laughs> <laughs> hey, man, taking a shit is very underrated. It, it's the best, isn't it? <laughs> hey, man, it's like, you know, you're, you're getting rid of something your body doesn't need, man. And yeah. As people get older, uh, you know, and it starts to become harder to shit, uh-huh. you don't realize, the, you know, how cool it is just to be able to take a great shit, you know? <laughs> it's true. Anyway, okay, I'll get back to the point. <laughs> so I'm popping a deuce, and all of a sudden I got this melody. Yeah. And I've and I and, and I've got the cor- for the chorus, and I've got the chord changes, and I got the bass line. It just came to me out of nowhere. So I got off the can as fast as I could, got to a cassette machine and the piano in the studio, and I, you know, recorded it. Mm-hmm. And then the rest of that day or night, I was hung up doing something I had to do. I probably put some time in looking for other sections, but I didn't get anything I liked. So the next night, I, Luke and I were going out with our wives of the time, <laughs> we were going to dinner, and I said, Luke, before we do this, come up with a verse. I'm just going to get out of the room. Maybe I it, even intentionally had him come over early, and then maybe I was taking a shower or something while he was working on, on the verse. So I said, just here's the chorus, and I said, come up with a verse that fits. <laughs> so I came back down, and... I figured if he didn't have something by then, after we went out to dinner, that we'd work on it together anyway. Mm-hmm. So I came back down, and he had the verse. He had the intro and the verse nailed. Mm. So well, we went to dinner, and after dinner, we came back, and we called Bill Champlin. And we said, get over here. We need to get come up with a bridge, and we need, to, we need you to write a lyric. Mm. So Bill came over. We came up with the bridge, we got everything organized, and we demoed it the next night. Bill wrote the rest of the lyric the following day, and we demoed the song that night, just banged it out. I sent it to Warner's, and they go, this, and Bill sang it, which is, of course, Bill's a great singer. He's he's amazing. And, yeah, and so we, we sent it to Warner's, they loved it. And I guess they sent it to George, and he loved it, and great. And then wow. we found another we found another tune to record as well, but when we did the demo, we had Jeff Beccaro come over and program the Lindrum that had just come out because we didn't have time to get Jeff set up to do real drums, and it just would you know we had to bang that demo out that night. Right. So Jeff programmed the drum machine. Then uh, I did a tracking date for both songs and. Uh, at the time, I, I didn't have my big, 
my studio was just basically a control room with an overdub room. It wasn't mm. good for recording tracks. So, you know, I used to use Dawnbreaker for tracks, and so we went and recorded the song there. But it just didn't feel that good. Something about it wasn't right. And huh. so I said, let's just use the drum machine. And then we started from the bottom up. David Page came over. I No, we put Jay Winding on it for some oh. reason. He and, Anyway, Luke wanted to play it, and I said, look, man, your piano playing's okay, man, but we it's not total pro land. We need somebody. We need a piano player. And Foster was busy. You know, whoever I was going to use was busy. So, and Jay, I knew Jay would be good. So I'm pretty sure it was Jay. According to anyway, uh, Wikipedia, it says Jay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, and you know, punching in on all that stuff like I usually do. Right. You know, we got a great performance out of them. And then synth bass. So we called Page. Right. It was like one in the morning, and we said, hey, Paige, get over here, man. Bring a mini move." So he came over, and he nailed it real quick. And there was a section that I didn't dig that could be tighter. And, of course, you know, I'm always the guy they're giving shit to, you know. <laughs> right. What's wrong with that? It's fine. I said, right. it's okay. Uh-huh. But I want to fix that section. So, you know, um, okay, you know. <laughs> so we did. And so now we've got the bass line on. Then we put the piano on. We were probably playing to a guide piano that was real low and level until then. Or however it worked out, we got the trio. Now, I can't remember if we did the vocals next or not, but I remember something very cosmic about this song. By the way, I'm writing a book. I've been working on a book for 15 years. Yeah, you mentioned that. And your website sounds like it's coming out soon. Is that Have you been saying well, that every year? It, if I get to it, it, everything depends. I'm also going to do a documentary on studio musicians. Killer. But mostly focusing on our era. And I was talking to Ray Parker tonight, and he has a guy that funded his movie that, that Ray just finished. Franz Strein? No. What? He, Franz Strein directed it. He didn't fund it, right? He's a director. No, it's yeah. a guy named o- Ola Strom. Okay. And he's a guy out of Norway and that um, is really good friends with Ray. And, mm-hmm. you know, he wanted Ray to get his movie made. And, you know, they've got offices with all the, all the editing, video editing gear and you know, Fran and Ray want to keep things going, so right. we're going to see if we can get, if Ola will want to do this movie. These right. things aren't cheap, man. They cost a million bucks. Yeah, yeah. You know, song licensing alone is 500 grand or more. I believe it. Hired Gun was one of the best music docs I've ever seen. Was that, I, I had both Fran and Ray on here around the time that it came out. Was it successful enough? I haven't talked to either of them since. Was it successful enough to merit all the effort and all the work? I don't actually know. Oh, okay. I was wondering. I think it broke, you know, see that, what's wrong with that movie regarding what, okay, Ray, myself, Lugather and Foster shouldn't have been in that movie. Oh. That That was a metal movie. Mm, All those guitar players are metal rock guys. Yeah. And, you know, also, man, I know documentaries, you know, it's, I don't want to, you know, VH1 episode, you know, mm-hmm. the story of the drummer with Billy Joel. 
Mm-hmm. I don't want to go into. I don't like going into negative land and hearing about stuff like that. Mm-hmm. You know, all the VH1 TV shows all were the same. Yeah. Everybody starts broke. They get mm-hmm. famous. They get into drugs. They get divorced. They blow their bread, and then they end up with nothing. Right. Okay. How many times can I see that same story? <laughs> and I don't like it, man. It yeah. depresses me. You know. Yeah. So, you know, hire gun, man. It had moments, but it's that's that movie is for metal guys. I could see that. Know? Fran had Our, worked closely with a lot of metal bands, so I'm sure that's what his Rolodex was full of. You know, well, I mean? that's the the guy that had was in charge of the funding mm. was Jason, so True. he was making the kind of movie he wanted to make. Yeah, good point. So, like I say, we shouldn't even have been in that movie. But mm. what the what I want to do is going to be not depressing Hmm. and you know studio musicians like myself and foster and luke and ray we all went on written our we all went on to be recording artists and producers Mm -hmm. some made it as an artist some you know i stuck with producing even though i've made a bunch of albums but um there's no sad ending to these stories man as long as we're alive true you know everybody saved their money no but none of us are you know broke we all Mm -hmm. are well to do you know awesome that's great i mean you know i haven't had to work in 30 years yeah i mean i do but i mean i'm a saver i never you know i grew up with 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 very little man i didn't i didn't like you know when i started making money man i saved it good for you i didn't blow it you know yeah that's the lesson yeah neither did anybody any one of us good that I just mentioned. None of us blew it. None of us. That's huge. So, yeah. So, okay. Foster was divorced five times. <laughs> I, know. I know. Luke was divorced twice. Let's see. Right. Ray was kind of divorced. He had kids. Uh, Rittenauer's been divorced. We were all divorced. <laughs> yeah. That's the but, toll, uh, I guess. You hang on to your money, but you lose a wife or two along the way. Yeah, well, Maybe. you know, that could cost, you know. Yeah. Actually, yeah. then it was twice for me. One wasn't okay. a marriage, but that chick was a fucking cunt. You can keep <laughs> oh, that in. Boom! Pathological lying cunt. Ouch. That fucking framed me. Oh, Anyway. No. Okay. Okay. So, okay. the documentary that I want to oh, yeah, do yeah, yeah. is going to be really good. Good. It's going to be yeah. of interest. All the baby boomers are going to love it because they're, they're going to identify the tunes with the tunes. Uh-huh. We're going to break everything down to show the value of the studio musicians and what they actually do, nice. how they contribute to making songs hits yeah. with secondary hooks. We're going to have tons of artists on, you know, talking about the importance of the studio musician and... It's also going to be the complete recording history of the studio musician, which started in 1887. Whoa. Now, I can't tell you anymore because okay. it's all going to be so interesting. Good. And we're going to have some events in there that you're not going to believe. We're going to have a awesome. time machine event. And that I, I'm just going to leave it at that. Okay. Okay. And much more. Oh, that more. sounds great. Cool. So, I can't anyway, wait to see it. Okay. Um, speaking of uh, st- speaking of studio musicians, I wanted to throw a couple songs out at you that I think you played on 
that I'm shocked to hear about. One is, are you the guitarist on Marvin Gaye's I Want You? Well, <laughs> yeah, I think it's on your website and a few other places, allmusic.com and stuff. I mean, the intro of that song has that kind of like cascading high. I'm not, again, I'm not a musician, so I don't even know what the right words are, but it sounds a little bit like you. And I thought, man, is that Jay playing back there? Was that you? Let me, let me, let me tell you what happened in that era for us. Okay. I was working... When you become a first-call studio musician, especially a guitar player, because there's overdub work for guitar player players, you know, uh, solos and just overdubs in general. So I was literally working four sessions a day for mm -hmm. years, mm -hmm. five days a week. Mm -hmm. I didn't work on the weekends, you know. So 12 hours a day, I'm, you know, I'm taking 20 sessions a week and I'm turning down 20 sessions. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so when you asked me what I played on, it all just went by like a whirlwind. Yeah, yeah I could see Unless that. Unless an event happened, like the Peg solo. Everybody mm -hmm. wants to play with Steely Dan, you know? Right, right. There's a seventh guy to play a solo on the song, and mine was the solo they kept, and, and it happened to be a hit, which is rare, and the guitar mm -hmm. solo happened to be anything but a normal, standard blues guitar solo you know right right so stories like those my, you know i can remember those sessions <laughs> but, right but the rest of it man i mean it just went by like a flurry i believe it i, I go from one to the next yeah i you had know? um tim pierce on here a while ago you probably i'm sure you know tim he um same thing he I could, know tim. I, i'm doing i do the same thing with him you played on this you played on that tell me a story and he can't remember anything it was just no. like an assembly line of stuff going through. I don't even know. I played something. I don't remember if they used it. I don't know. You know? Tim, yeah. Tim was one of the few guys. Okay. First of all, the most recorded guitarist of all time now is Dean Parks. Mm. Dean quit doing sessions three different times. And each time he quit once to be a record producer. And after four years and realizing 
it was starting to get difficult to play even easier parts on guitar because when you're producing, you're hardly playing guitar, mm-hmm. okay? And he hated it, and he just wanted to go back to playing record dates. Mm-hmm. But, you know, he just, he still is doing what's left of union record dates, you know? Wow. And he's still busy. Yeah. Now, you get, then you got a guy like, you know, but it's mostly movie stuff, but records too. Mm-hmm. Plus, he mastered steel guitars, so he does a lot of that stuff. Mm, wow. Tim came in later, yeah. and Tim's one of the guys, as of 1986 to around 1990, that was the, the work was trickling down after rap took over. Mm-hmm. There wasn't room for guitar, you know, there was no mm-hmm. more guitar solos, there was no more guitar parts. It just went away. Yeah. And Tim, Dean, and George Doring, who does a lot of movie stuff, there are a few, and there, I'm sure there's some other guys I'm not thinking of, a guy, Tim May. These guys did a lot of movie stuff, so they had that. And they were the guys, the few guys that kept working after yeah. it really ended for the guys that were just record guys. Right. I was a record guy, even though I, I can read. You know, I didn't like doing movie dates. I like playing groove stuff. Yeah. Doing movie dates was too much like a day job for me. It just I wasn't cut out for that. You know, count yeah. seventy one bars and then play da 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 <laughs> and count another forty bars and go bang you know. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Not, that's not my look if if that's all I had and I would have treasured it then, but there mm-hmm. was records and I was yeah. More of a, you know, I mean, I wanted to play the groove. Right, you know, right. And okay. I was lucky enough to be one of the guys that could play the groove. Or I, yeah. You know, it wouldn't have happened. Let, so, me, uh, let me throw another name at you then. Another one that caught my eye is Edwin Starr's Hell Up in Harlem.
I'm a I love black exploitation movies and especially their soundtracks. And I have that soundtrack, and I was curious if you played on that or even remember. Maybe you don't. I they just you know there's like so much to remember. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, I, okay. I just I don't I don't have an. And a lot of times the artist wasn't even there. Yeah, that's true. You know, a lot yeah. of times, and what's kind of a drag is that you know we there's agencies like PPL Sound Exchange and so forth that pay us royalties, pay musicians royalties, mm-hmm. you know, for all over the world, everywhere but the U.S. I mean, mm-hmm. there's nobody that does this collection in the U.S., which is really weird, but on all those songs, well, on a Motown album, we could be listed, we were typically listed, mm. but we weren't per track, so we don't get credit mm. for songs, and we can't prove it, because yeah. even on the union contract, there's no title yet. Yeah. You know, they, you know, I mean, that was the, the uh, something that went down. And uh, I played on a lot of Motown stuff. Really? And of course, you know, man, those record dates, there was all, the pocket always felt so good. Yeah. You know, I uh, mean, I, you I got bet. Ed Green or you got James Gatson. Yeah. Or even Jeff Beccaro played on a lot of R&B stuff. There was always good drummers, always good bass players like Scotty Edwards, like um, Abraham Aboriel. Oh, tons, man! There's just so many great musicians on that yeah. on those dates, and yeah. I love sitting next to Ray Parker, man. Ray Parker and I are like brothers, cool. and we work together probably most more than any other two guitar players. We'd get called as a pair a lot of times. Interesting. Yeah, it was huh. like I say in Ray's movie, it's like one brain, two bodies, four arms, and two guitars. <laughs> we That's know funny. what the other guy, the second the other guy plays yeah. something, it could be me or it could be Ray. The second he starts something, one of us, whoever didn't start it, a bar later... We're, we're on a part that we come up with that's mm-hmm. not written, and it's done. We're wow. ready to make it. We're ready to make it before the first song is done. Yeah. Before the first rundown's done. Yeah. And we crack up when we talk about this stuff, man. That's wild. I bet yeah. going out to dinner with you guys is the most enjoyable thing I could think of. I Just sitting there and watching you and Luke and Ray... And whoever, a Picaro or two, talking to each other about, remember this, remember that? I bet that is the greatest <laughs> night of anyone's life, you know? Okay. Okay. <laughs> Me, Ray, Luke, Rittenauer. Yes. About every six months, we'd, it, was, it would depend on when Ritt and Luke was in town. Ray's mostly in town, and I'm always in town. Uh-huh. So when a break came, we'd make it a point to get together. And uh, we, Joe Bonamassa made one, mm. and uh, some other cats here and there make those hangs. Mm-hmm. And the stories are endless, man. I believe it. I believe it. It oh never gets old, because there's always... Guys remember stuff that other guys had forgotten. Mm-hmm. You know? That's the best. That's the best. Okay, let me yeah. throw a couple more names at you. I'm curious. Maybe these will ring a bell. Um, are you playing guitar on Here You Come Again from Dolly Parton? Just when I forgot. 
just like you've done before and wrap my heart round your little Okay, now that's that one of my one favorite I, songs ever. So tell now me that about. I remember, okay. because I'm going to make a huge deal out of that song in the documentary Good. for a bunch of reasons. Tell me. I'm only going to give away one thing. The studio musician, it's our biggest job is to play something we've never played before and, and come up with little parts that are secondary hooks. Like the second you turn on the song, for example, on Morning, yeah. if anybody that's ever heard the song, if I played one second of that guitar lick, no more, and you'd immediately recognize the sound and you'd know the name of the song. Yep. You'd immediately know. I've seen Al Cooper do blind tests. Um, there was this podcast um, years ago or what before podcasts or podcasts, and mm -hmm. they would play him just something in the middle of a song literally for no more than a second. Mm. And he'd guess the song, and he'd get it right. Wow. So, but that, he's a fluke, okay? That's yeah. really out there. But secondary hooks are our job, and that and here, we, here You Come Again is loaded with them. Yeah. And we're going to, um, I'm hoping Dolly will want to do the interview, I had actually written to her through her producer, gave her the questions, and then, bam, the pandemic started. Ah, so too bad. no mm. reason to answer right now. Right, so, right. Are um, you in the room with Dolly creating this, or are you plugging in your, you know, are you in L.A., she's in Nashville or something? No, she was here it? for this. She was, okay. Yeah, there's so many stories that I'm going to tell about this when we're, in the movie, this song Good. is a, it's a perfect example of, the whole movie could be about this song, if I, yeah. if, if I wanted it to be. I believe it. I also played on two other versions of that song the week before, and one of them I arranged. <laughs> really? Uh, so no, that song a, was going around, it wasn't necessarily for Dolly Parton, yeah. it could have been for anybody. Well, see, this brings up the question... And this isn't a big deal. This is, I'm not going to give away too much here. There's an unwritten rule that when a publishing company pitches a song to someone, they put what's called a hold on it, and that holds good for six months, especially if it's with a major artist. Well, I can't remember who the other two artists were that I 
played on and one of the, one that I arranged as well. Mm. But that rule wasn't in play because, like I say, you know, Barry Mann and Cynthia Weil, must, they must have written that song like a few weeks before and demoed it because it just showed up out of nowhere and everybody wanted to cut it. Yeah, I believe it. Yeah. yeah. But when were, you do you remember? The, oh, sorry. When you do you remember on your other arrangements for whoever they were? Were they as piano focused as because that song is a little bit of an outlier for Dolly? It's not country ish, you know. You'll find out why, okay, and you'll okay. find out why she panicked. You're going to find out all kinds of stuff, okay, man. Cool. You're going to have to wait for the movie. Cause okay. It's too juicy. No, but I remember that session very well. So many things happened. At the session and regarding the session and regarding Dolly and oh man, it's just a wealth of information. Okay, cool. So that that session I remember. Okay. And, cool. and because of those variables, all the variables that go along with it. Mm-hmm. Okay. So yeah, the other two versions I did. I mean, I don't even remember. I have no recollection of them. The only reason I remember. Is because when I got to the session and I saw the chart and with the uh, title on the chart, I said, man, here you go. Here, here you come again. Mm-hmm. Or here. Yeah, that's that's the title, right? Yeah. Here you come I'm again. Going, man, this is the third time this week. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I know this song. I've already done this song twice. Well, I mean, yeah. And I mean, um, Barry Mann and Cynthia, uh, they're yeah. really good writers, and Barry liked to get musical. He could get musical, uh-huh. and, you know, they're very cool to hip changes in it, and the, I'm sure the demo was very good, and I probably mostly used the demo as a major reference and to change some things, but, mm-hmm. you know, when a song's that good and it's demoed up really good, a lot of times you don't need to change much, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know? So yeah. okay, yeah. I wish I could okay. remember the names of the other artists, man. Yeah, I'd love if you ever think of that. I, well, I'll wait for the movie. I'm excited. Yeah, you're gonna. You, when, you'll okay. love the story in the movie. The I believe story, it. You just think you can't run out of more information, and then here's something else, oh, and then the here's best. something else, and then here's something else, and why? How did? Why did this go down like this? And you know. Yeah. Any, yeah. yeah. Okay. What about yeah. uh, on and on? Steve, apparently you play guitar on Stephen Bishop's On and On. Down in Jamaica they got lots of pretty women Steal your money then they break your heart Lonesome Sue, she's in love with old Sam Taken from the fire into the frying pan On and on She just keeps on trying And she smiles when she feels like crying On and on, on and on, on and on Oh, old Jimmy sits alone in the moonlight Saw his woman kiss another man So he takes a ladder, steals the stars from the Puts on Sinatra and starts to cry On and on, he just keeps on trying And he smiles when he feels like crying On and on, on and on, on and on 
That I remember, and I'll tell oh, you why. Okay. I remember because Jim Gordon didn't show up. He was the drummer. Hmm. And when I start working on the movie and you, and you hear about it, call me up and remind me to tell the story. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I may forget this one. Okay. So Jim wasn't doing very well mentally, as we all know what happened to him in the long run. But Jim was supposed to show up, and he didn't make it. So Henry Louie was the producer, and he says, oh, man, what are we going to do? I said, I'll find you a drummer. I started at the top of the list. I called Jeff. I called everybody. I couldn't get any of the A guys, but there's a guy named Larry Brown, who's an old friend of mine. We've known each other forever, and he's a good player. You know, it just mm-hmm. wasn't one of the the first call studio drummers. He was busy producing Andy Williams records and doing other stuff anyway. Hmm. So I call Larry up. He shows up for the session. We record the song, and it's a major hit. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. This is the karmic ending of the story. I don't know, about 15 years ago, Larry calls me up and he says, if you heard on and on for an AC Delco commercial? And I said, no. He said, well, they're using it. And I said, well, we should be getting reuse. And I said, how, how long are they using it? He said, they're using, they've used it already over two cycles, hmm. meaning 13-week cycles or whatever the cycles are. Okay. And Larry says, I'll call the union. And bam, all of a sudden, big checks started rolling in. Wow. Now. This wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for the fact that I ended up getting Larry on the session. That's true. The whole accident <laughs> led to that. Wow. Yeah, no that's way. a good one. That's okay. a good one. Yes. Yeah, I, you know, and every time I talk to Larry about it, I haven't talked to him in a while. I saw him about a year ago, but I got to call him up just to remind him of that because it's just hilarious. <laughs> that's amazing. What's, uh, yeah. you know, I had Steve... <laughs> I shouldn't say this. I had Steven on here who I love and he doesn't like me. I, I must have said or something a couple of times that upset him because he kind of got mad at me. What's he like to work with? Because I really like him. Well, it you know, I never had any problems with him. Okay. Ever. Okay. okay. On the tracking date, he might have suggested this and that. Hey, and on, you know, on a tracking date, when I'm working for somebody else, I'm open to ideas. Sure. You know, I'm high, I'm there for hire, so if he mm-hmm. told me to try something, I would have tried it. And I do remember he may have said something about a part he wanted and whatever. I'm there to mm-hmm. please, so. Yeah. okay. Unless okay. they don't know what they're doing. You know, mm-hmm. if they don't know. But, and then also I hung out with him um, a couple of times. One time on a foster event in Canada for mm-hmm. Foster's Foundation. And. I think Greg Matheson arranged some stuff for him. I don't know if I hung out with him at that point, but I know their stories. I just don't know what they are. Okay, okay. Just curious hey, if look, you remember man, that. In my book, he's a great guy. I never Good. had any problems with him. I always liked him, too. He was telling me, I, <laughs> he was telling me how he's still really big in Asia. And, um, yes, that makes uh, sense. Right. And uh, a couple months before I interviewed him, I interviewed Bertie Higgins. 
And I was saying, oh yeah, B Bernie Higgins is really big over there too, surprise. And I said, what, what is it about this like soft rock that people are so, get so excited about it over in Asia? And he was, got really offended that he was like, hey, I am way bigger than Bernie Higgins. And I was like, I'm like, no, 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 no. I'm not comparing you to Bernie Higgins. I'm just saying, you know, similarly, soft rock is really popular over there. And I wondered why, but that kind of, he got kind of mad at me about that. It was anyway. really, I mean, the airplay album I did with Foster still sells over there. We oh did my that gosh. in 1979. Yeah. And it was the album that supposedly started the name West Coast Pop by an interviewer oh. in Japan named Toshi Nakata that knows more about me than I do. <laughs> uh, my, between my webmaster, Kirsten, uh -huh. who runs my life, between her and Toshi, they know everything about oh, me. Wow. Wow. I mean, Kirsten turns up things that it's Cherston, actually, if you pronounce it properly. Okay. Uh, she finds stuff that I can't believe, you know. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And she's always adding, always finding new stuff to add to the discography. I, I don't know how she finds it, but she does. That's amazing. I want it to really ask you, is amazing, uh, man. She's amazing. Without well, her, I'd be screwed. Right, considering how much you've done and have to, you know, collect all that information and put it in one place. That's got to be a huge job. She did it. Yeah. I never did. That's I mean, she, I mean, you know, when we first met 25 or 26 years ago when I was on tour in Sweden and Japan, I mean, Europe and Japan, I did that twice. Uh, she, I met her and I, and Sherwood Ball, who was in the band said, Hey man, she started a website on you. And I go, what's that? <laughs> And then he told me, and I said, hey, great. And then we became good, like she's a sister. Oh, that's great. You know? Yeah, that's yeah. great. I wanted to ask you about Airplay because talk about a to-do list. I'll, I'll be honest. I they Listening to that album has been on my to-do list for years, and I never did until getting ready to talk to you, and I'm falling madly in love with it. But one thing Which that's really... Which version? Uh, whatever's on Spotify. Speaking of Spotify, I got to say something. Yeah, please. Spotify are the bad guys. I know, I know. They've destroyed it. I know. They're mm -hmm. making millions of dollars, mm -hmm. and they pay us a thousandth, four thousandths of a penny. It's uh, it's robbery. It is absolute robbery. And I uh, I feel bad when I say this because it's become a necessary evil in a way in my life, especially now because I've been doing this podcast for like five years. It's the quickest, easiest way to get familiar with all the Jay Graydon stuff that I'm less familiar with. But I want you to get paid in the process, and you don't, and it's not fair, you know? They appealed the Copyright Act that was 100 years old mm. that was passed two or three years ago to finally up the royalty rates. They appealed it. Yeah. Now, how can a, a, a conglomerate like that that's getting, that they're making all their money on our music, but they appealed... The Royalty Copyright Act, thinking they'd have, they're going to have to pay us a lot more. I know. So they're in court with the National Music Publisher Association that I belong with, and and we better win this appeal. They Good. have no. They they they're just. I have nothing but bad feelings about what they've done mm -hmm. to the music business, mm -hmm. and they won't pay for it. I know. Now, I it's, don't know where the record companies fit in. They could stop this at any time. Right. 
they could pull all the music and then they'd have nothing. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if the record companies have made some under-the-table ta under deal, but believe me, by the time the money gets to the musicians, the producers, I mean the producers and the writers, there's nothing left. Yeah, it's ridiculous. So, it's not fair. Anyway, I know. Enough, enough negativity. No, I'm glad you said that. Um, but, okay, so I... I'm listening to the Airplay album and I'm falling in love with it. And I find a live version of you guys playing Nothing You Can Do About It in I think about 1994. You're wearing this Waikiki t-shirt, which I saw you wearing in a guitar instructional video, also on YouTube, around the same time, which I thought was really funny. I wonder if that what? speaks to your OCD-ness, which I may ask you about here in a minute. But anyway, <laughs> you sound so great in this live show. And I was, and, and then another interview I saw with you, you say, you know, I can sing, but I don't really like to sing. And I was thinking, right. why? You, I mean, first of all, is that, I mean, is that you on the album or is that Tommy Funderburg singing this? No, and no, why no, don't you sing me. more up? That is you. It is fantastic. I'm the lower voice. Tommy's uh, the high voice. I sing okay. half the stuff. And then halfway through making the record, I said, David, we got to get a high tenor. I can't be singing everything. And uh -huh. so we decided to get a high tenor, and we auditioned. And we wanted Tom Kelly at first, but he wasn't mm -hmm. interested. I think he does all the backgrounds on Stranded. I don't know if it's Tommy. I think mm -hmm. that's Tom Kelly. Okay. But Tommy sang lead on it. So that's how that happened. But, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't like my voice. I don't like singing. Mm -hmm. I don't practice it. So it's really hard to sing in tune. On the Jar record... Um, okay, that was my next question, by the way. I gotta tell you, I'm in love with Code. Grab your MacBook And listen to me Take your right hand Press index finger key That's the first part So pay attention, please Think about it, figure out it, try to find it. 
ignore it, stand before it, then you will know. Start with 30 and figure the sign. This song That's code. Pretty. That's so good, and you sing that too, and you got soul, and even though you're getting older, you still got it, and I love this song, and I'm thinking, man, I wish Jay had done more, I guess. Well, there's an album that I've been putting off mixing because of stuff that kept coming up. Mm. So there is a Jar 2 album, and as soon as I finish up some business stuff, I'm finally going to finish mixing that record, and it's, yeah. it's, good. it's as good as the first one. Good. It's good. 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 I mean, you know, people say, hey, man, you sound a lot like Steely Dan. Mm. And my answer is, they sound a lot like me. <laughs> when, I <Right>. fr- <laughs> when I first heard the Katie Lyde record, I go, now they're getting musical. Mm-hmm. Then the Royal Scam album, I go, these guys are like me. They're jazzers. Mm-hmm. You know, they're closet jazzers um, with uh, pop clothes on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's what I am. Yeah, I could see that. Oh, so, yeah. You wear it well. Speaking of, I, I don't want, I know you've told the Peg story a million times and you already touched on it here. I'm not going to make you do that again, but I am curious if that was the one and only thing you ever did with Steely Dan was come in and play this one solo and you're one of seven people or whatever. And right. you come to, is that the, I mean, is that the only thing you ever did with them? me to go on the road right Mm. after that Mm. and the tour never happened and I passed because I didn't want to lose my position as a studio player got it you know I'd work too hard to become a first call guy and I don't like traveling and Mm. so I passed on the gig and um, I did see uh, Walter and Donald a few years back after a concert you know, it was great to see him, and Good. you know, they just call who they call. I mean, it didn't bother me at all. I was all, shortly thereafter. I was off into producing land. They get to call whoever they want to call. True. You know. Yeah. And something I say all the time, and this will be part of the movie. Everybody gets replaced, and we replace everybody else. Yeah. Nobody is ever etched in stone with their part. You know, the producer may have a different point of view. I mean, one time I played a solo for Foster, and I said, you know what? 
this isn't working. Mm. And he says, right. I said, call Luke. <laughs> One time I hired Carlton to play on the Blue Desert album that I produced for Mark Jordan. Mm. I've played solos all over that record, and I'm thinking to myself, this is starting to be too much of a record for me. Mm. So I need somebody else to play a solo. Yeah. So I called Larry to play in a tune, and after about three hours, he says, nope, it's not making it. You play the solo. Mm. And I go, right, I agree. And this happens, man. Yeah, you, you I believe it. You can't make history every day, you know. Right. Yeah. It's, you're at the yeah. mercy of the moment. You know, it's just what it is. One other question about Peg I was curious about. In a situation like yours, and I've, I've asked other kind of studio guys similar questions to this, but when you, I mean, are, has someone sent you a tape ahead of time and you listening to it, maybe no. even in the car on the way there? Or do you just no. show up, they play something, and then you come up with something off the top of your head and that's it? Yeah, man, there's no... Yeah, that's it. The only time that I ever had a... Uh, a chart out in front to learn was something very difficult when I was in the Don Ellis band uh, when I was a teenager and it was a score for uh, the French Connection mm. and this and you know I mean I'm an okay reader but I don't read fly shit mm. I'm not Tommy Tedesco I just right. don't have the ability to, to read lightning speed and this was lightning speed unison with the strings Mm. For about a minute long, it was like nonstop blazing. So, and even Dean Parks is an unbelievable reader. He's, he, you know, he's John Williams' guy mm -hmm. since Tommy passed. And it was a part on 12-string, and Dean told me that uh, John sent him the chart out in front, and he had figured out how to play it in two positions so he didn't have to look down very much. Mm. And... He said it was a bitch, man. And he said, <laughs> if this was, you know, that kind of stuff is not fun. Yeah. That kind of stuff is like you're on the edge of your chair because it's really demanding. It's, mm. it's on the verge of being as hard as it gets and almost not playable. I believe it. So when you're in a situation like that, you know, it's been said that being a studio musician is 95% boredom. 5% sheer terror. <laughs> and, yeah, I'll give you an example of one. Yeah, tell me. Um, I played on the first annual Rock and Roll Awards show, and that was a typical situation of a big band. 13 mm. horns, 5 okay. saxes, 4 bones, four, tr 4 trumpets, and 4 rhythm, or 5 rhythm. Mm -hmm. Either with piano, bass, drums, guitar, there was 2 guitars, okay? Okay, mm -hmm. they put the melody in the horn charts in unison. So you got 13 guys that are going to play the melody as soon as they announce the winner, and we've got five tunes sitting in front of us, and the, the winner is, and since the leader doesn't know, he looks at his chart, sticks up three fingers, it's number three on the chart, okay? Mm -hmm. It's the third, third piece down of like a 16-bar loop. And so as soon as he counts it off with maybe a three and three, four, go, right? Mm -hmm. Instead of, instead of um, uh, you know, maybe six guys in the horn section make it. Mm. Maybe the other five or eight, seven don't. So the, for the second annual Rock and Roll Awards show, they decided to put the guitar melody in the guitar chair. Mm. So... 
it's three and a half hours of me not knowing what tune it is <laughs> with the music in front of me, one or two rehearsals, and also the guy, you're not a musician, so you wouldn't get this, but everything was written in cut time, mm. so the arranger could make twice the money, but it also makes the reading more difficult because the bars are going by faster, and uh, they're not rhythm figures that make sense with the melody. You're not... Unless you played circus music or ice shows, which I did, you wouldn't be able, you wouldn't be used to that kind of reading. Mm. So, Freddie Tackett was the second guitarist. We had some parts in, in harmony, but I'm on my own, and there was no downbeat. He would, I mean, there was no count off. The um, arranger would stick up four fingers for number four, for example, and just give a downbeat. Now, Ed Green was playing drums, and Ed got a very solid player. After halfway through the first bar, I know where the time is. So I'm, I don't have any idea until Ed gets going where the time is. Mm. So, mm. It's just, so I've got to listen to him, like, magnified, and I've got to read the chart. Well, I made it through the whole show, three and a half hours, with only one mistake. Well, I, could, I didn't catch one tune in time, so I just soloed randomly until I figured out what key we were in mm. by using relative pitch. And then I just soloed for the whole thing because I, I don't know where we were in the tune. Right, right. So now that's pressure, man. Yeah, I believe that, it. When that gig was over, I felt like somebody had beaten me up. I believe it. I went yeah. home, and I was just trashed. Yeah. So there's the five percent share tear right there. <laughs> I get it. I get it. And and everybody's got stories like that. Yeah. You talk to any studio musician, uh, especially guitar players, they they're gonna have stories that are like, you know, the part was not easy. Right. Okay, let me throw another name at you. And this one I'm not sure if you worked on or not. Maybe you can confirm. We love the tubes around here. And uh, I'm cu I think you may have had something to do with the Outside Inside album, but I don't know for sure. Do you well, know? Foster produced him. Yep. He's a great guy. I love Fee. Uh, yeah, we hung out in Foster's boat uh, one weekend in Catalina. It was really fun, but tiring. No sleep, you know. Mm -hmm. Party nonstop. Yeah, you know, I don't remember what my involvement was. But um, if, if I'm credited, then I did something. I either played okay. guitar or programmed synths okay. or David, one yeah. of the two. Okay. Just yeah. curious. I think you're thanked on there, and one of my listeners asked me specifically to ask you about it. Like I said, we're big Tubes fans. So I, and if, You'd have for, to ask Fee. Okay. I've had him on here, too, actually. If you, it's one of He's one of the most entertaining people I can think of. Oh, he's great, man. He's the best. Yeah. <laughs> As He's a matter of fact, he cooked, he cooked us breakfast on the boat, and it was really good. Really? <laughs> yeah. Oh, uh, he's the best. He told some unbelievable stories. Uh, um, I mean, he's got stories, all right. Yeah. I haven't seen him in years, man. I miss the guy. I, uh, he's the best. All right, let me throw a couple more at you. Are you doing okay? Are you sick of me? Yeah. Okay, good. Yeah. Good. Let's talk about Alice Cooper. Do you remember being on From the Inside? on the road somewhere Was it Texas or was it Canada Drinking whiskey in the morning 
I actually love that album, even though it's so weird for a Alice Cooper album, but that's, I'm sure, because of David. Do you remember doing anything or playing on that one? Funny you ask, because a guy is writing a book on Alice, and I'm credited on four songs, and he sent me to the songs to see if I had any recollection. Now, here's my only recollection. I know <laughs> David produced them, but uh -huh. my only recollection is... I was in a comic strip called Doonesbury. Yep. And I was in this comic strip in the somewhere in the middle 70s. Gary Trudeau that wrote the comic strip is a do-gooder and a real nice guy. Okay, good. And he was doing we did this album for some kind of relief effort in some country. And he found a singer to be Jimmy Thudpucker, who was a comic strip character. And ironically, the guy's name was Jimmy. And I remember that it was Duck Dunn on bass on some of the mm -hmm. tunes, who was an original member of Booker T. Mm -hmm. And Steve Cropper. <laughs> okay, so uh, Gary, I didn't know he was going to turn me into a character. Uh -huh. And so... I, be, I showed up in this comic strip, and the first guy to call me was my dad. He read the paper, and he said, you're in a comic strip. I said, what? <laughs> he says, yeah. He says, you're in this comic strip that I love called Doonesbury. Well, I ended up in this comic strip for a week, and then my character would show up every once in a while and other ones, and... Gary called me Wawa Graydon, right? <laughs> and he actually drew a good character of what I looked like then with the long hair and all that. Mm -hmm. And I also wrote a co-wrote a tune with Gary on the record called Fret Man Sam. Can't believe I remembered that. Good one. <laughs> and so when I met Alice, Alice was a big Doonesbury fan. And the first thing he says is, um, hey, Wawa. And I go, okay. You, you like Doonesbury, right? And he said, yeah. <laughs> he says, that was great, all that stuff. And I said, man, Gary had fun with it, I'll tell you that. But there's a guitar player named Wawa Watson who sadly passed away about a year ago, mm. who was the guy that played Wawa on all those songs, and that's how he got the nickname, right? Yeah. The chugga 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 Wawa stuff and all the mm -hmm. Barry White stuff and all the R&B stuff. Anyway... I, you know, when I bumped into Wawa, I work with him a lot, and I, when this first went down, <laughs> this is a great line, man. <laughs> when it first went down, uh, the comic strip, I thought he'd probably have gotten wind of it, and I just wanted to tell him it's not my idea. I didn't mm -hmm. tell him, I didn't tell Gary to, you know, call me Wawa. Mm -hmm. So I went up to Wawa, and I said, hey, man, this wasn't my idea, and blah, 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 and he says, didn't hurt my money. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I said, great. good answer, Wawa. <laughs> good answer. That's so good. <laughs> oh, that's great. I yeah. love it. Cool. Yeah, man. Uh, okay, let's, we try to touch on money sensitively on here, the business side of things anyway. I'm curious, you know, you mentioned earlier still doing fine, and luckily for you and other people from your era, you co-wrote or produced a lot of things that 
became big. And I was curious if Earth, Wind & Fire's After the Love is Gone is your is that your biggest money maker? Is that the one that, you know, continues to give you the best mailbox money? Probably. Turn Your Love Around is pretty good, too. Okay. Both won Grammys for, for song, R&B Song of the Year. And uh, whenever you have a Grammy winner and a number one record, man, it's got legs. And it yeah. it keeps getting played on, on, on radio of the era, you know? Yep, yep. And baby boomers listen to the era of our music, our music's era, and mainly because music didn't grow. After our era was pretty much done in 1986, as will be told in the documentary, music went away. Yeah. You know, music, when rap took over, that was it. Right. Everything changed. It was, it got dumbed down bad. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, uh, I mean, recently a friend of mine that developed, Developed Line 6 and co-owned Line 6 for many years, genius, Marcus Ryle. We were talking about guitar heroes now, and, mm. you know, and and there aren't any, yeah. you know. No. I mean, there, you know, the, the guys like Rob, and, I mean, uh, well, Robin Ford, Bonamasso, mm. uh, Luke, Steve Vai, another great guy, by the way, and a good. very good friend. I love him, man. Good. And and those kind of guys, they're not in the limelight. They have their audience, and it's but it's not the commercial limelight. So I said, who is the guitar hero right now? And Marcus said, Taylor Swift. Oh, no. What? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> oh no, that just goes right. to show you <laughs> yeah. what's happening. Hey, yeah. I'll tell you who's a real good guitar player. He's the guitar player in Maroon 5. He took a lesson from me when when Room, uh, Maroon 5 first came out. Yeah. And the guy's an excellent player. Interesting. Excellent. Okay. And he, he doesn't get to shine, man. He doesn't no. get to play. He's really good. Well, they, and, like everybody else, they're not 
they don't play organic instruments as much anymore. Nobody does. No. Like you're saying, it's all There's dance one music. Tune. You know? I force I force myself to listen to pop radio, thinking there's some kind of outside chance I may pull a hit again. Yeah, uh -huh. right. right. So there's a tune that that opens up with the guitar intro, man, and he plays it beautifully. Mm. You know, it's simple, mm -hmm. but it, it's, it's played beautifully. It's effective. Yeah. Yeah. So okay. I mean, there's guys that are sitting inside the woodwork there that could be you know, yeah. guitar heroes if he got to play. It's not the flavor anymore. People... Yeah, yeah, right, is it? He can't... No. Well, right now, I mean, concerts are over for I don't know how many years it's going to be now. Yeah, yeah. This is, a, this is a brand new thing. Yeah. And when concerts do come back, tickets are going to be dirt cheap. Mm -hmm. Everything depends on uh, some kind of vaccine to prevent yeah. the disease, you know? Yeah. That's We're true. living in bizarre times, man. We sure are. I, I don't even yeah. know what to make of it. Everything's upside down, and it gets seems to get weirder every day, you know? Chris Cross happening. got the virus, and it really hit him hard. Yeah. Really yeah. hard. I saw that. I mean, it's just sad, man. I mean, it I is. just... Anyway. Um, it is. So tell me about yeah. Earth, Wind, and Fire. I, uh, they're a top 10 favorite band all time of mine. I uh, love everything they do. I think Maurice is probably a genius, or he had he was touched with genius there for a good twenty years. There's or so. no doubt about it. You know, yeah, I agree. Yeah, uh, nobody Steve, did what Stevie he did. Stevie Wonder and yes. then Earth, Wind, and Fire. As far as the real creative black acts that are my favorites, I agree. Yep, yeah. I agree. Steve, I idolize Stevie, man. Stevie uh, changed me, man. When I heard the music of my mind album, I yes. was transformed. I go, this cat is a jazzer. Yeah, he's an R. Of course, R and B galore is the best singer I've ever heard in my life, and he's his writing and his hip use of chord changes. He's genius on top yeah. of genius. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I totally agree. And um, you know what? Not to change the subject too much, but. Up there for me are the Brothers Johnson. And they were real good. They were I'm, real good. There's studio yeah. guys on those records. Yeah. And I just, now that we're talking about it, I'm curious. George is the, did George, Lewis died a couple years ago, right? And I think George is still around. Did you know them very well? Luke says that in his book that one of them's a little weird and like hard to. I never met him. Oh, okay. I wondered if you hung out with those guys. It must have been a Quincy gig. I, I no, okay. I didn't. Okay. I think maybe Rittenauer played on some stuff. Yeah, for probably. Quincy or for yeah, I I never, like I say, I wasn't in Quincy's group. Right, right. Okay. I was off doing something else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I um, I love those guys. Okay, what about uh, now? You're all over the Grease soundtrack.
Yeah. <laughs> like almost every song on this soundtrack. Olivia, I always liked Olivia, man. Yeah. Uh, she was she was great. She was cool, or is cool. Mm-hmm. Poor Olivia's sick, but not with COVID. She's been no. beaten, working on beating cancer forever. I'm, I really hope she's not in pain, man. I heard it anyway, was bad again recently, but I haven't heard it any updates. It came back. Yep. But I uh, like, uh, you know, John Farah, her producer, and I are really good friends, and oh, we cool. we were talking for a while and. Recently, I've got to get a hold of him again and see how he's doing. He's a funny guy, man. <laughs> and he uh, wrote some great songs. Yeah, yeah, I'm all over that record. And, you know, I played on some other Olivia stuff, too. Yeah, yeah, I saw that you did. That's, I mean, I again, going back to the business side of things, I mean, Greece is a perennial seller still. It's played all the time. It's shown all the time. And do you get like a nice little kind of performance royalty on that one at least? Not much. Hmm. I think it would be a lot more. Yeah. John, since he wrote all the stuff, he's doing just fine. He's set forever. Yeah. You write a play that becomes a, I mean, a movie that becomes a play. You write something with legs like that. It's Mm -hmm. never going away. Never. Yeah. And like, like my uh, virtual brother, Ray Parker, Mm -hmm. Ghostbusters. Mm -hmm. You can't believe that song is like a standard. Mm-hmm. It just gets licensed all the time. Yeah. And there's going to be a Ghostbusters, you know, if there was, if the COVID thing didn't happen, the Ghostbuster movie would have been out any time yeah. now. I know. And along with Ray's movie, that he wanted to use right. Ghostbusters as a, a tie-in to help his, you know, documentary. Right. Right, and it's good. I saw. I've seen Ray's. I'm in it. I've seen oh, good. it. It's okay. good. Good. You like Fran Strine's work on on Hired Gun? You're gonna love his work on Ray's. Good. Fran's grown, man. It's good. Okay. Yeah, I, just I talked uh, to those guys tonight, actually. Really? Yeah, they. Yeah, uh, we're, we're trying to do the doc. My documentary, and I mean, it's not mine. It's the you know right, musicians' right. documentary. Anyway, Ooh, I go hope ahead. that happens. No, I love those guys. Yeah, me too. I had Fran on to talk about Hired Gun, and then he hooked me up with Ray when they were looking for financing. You know, so it, there was like a GoFundMe page, and so Ray came right. on here, and we talked about his career and kind of promoted the GoFundMe page. I was glad. I didn't know what, whether that took off or not, so I'm glad no, to know it worked out. No, that was chump change. It didn't work. Oh, oh okay. But the but, movie you know, still got this, made. What's that? The movie still got made. Yeah, well, it got okay. made because of a friend of Ray's. Okay, good. So, good. Um, and we're hoping the same guy is going to be interested in, in, in doing the musician one, you know? Right on, right on. They're all yeah. set up to make movies. They've got, you know, offices and they've got all the editing gear and it's like, you know, Ray wants to move forward with this and, you know, we'll see if Ola wants to. If Ola's mm-hmm. into it, we'll do it. Right on. Yeah. Um, Okay, let's talk about El Deba- about DeBarge and who's holding Donna now. That's one of your other big hits.
when you wrote that, was it for DeBarge? How did this, how did that kind of pairing come together? David got a call from Gene Wilder. There was a movie called The Woman in Red, I think, yep. that was mm-hmm. going to star Gilda mm-hmm. Radner and Gene, you know. Mm-hmm. So they were looking for music for the movie. So David and I wrote three tunes, banged them out with just piano and a couple of synthesizers. And so here Foster and I are sitting on these songs. We got three songs, and I was producing L at the time. Mm-hmm. Another great singer, mm-hmm. very easy to work with, great ears. He even knew which track I was recording on amongst the seven tracks. He said, oh, okay, we're on track 19 now, aren't we? Wow. And I said, how do you know? He's got golden ears, man. Good. And I'm a, mem- I'm a member of that club, too. It's a long story for another time. Okay. You don't know you're a member of the club until other people can't hear what you hear. <laughs> so, very yeah. bizarre. So, yeah. anyway, L is a sweetheart, man. He was great to work with. And so, we have nowhere to go with these three songs, so... Cliff and Glenn, Cliff Magnus and Glenn Ballard were producing mm-hmm. somebody, and they were looking for tunes. And so I said, well, come over. Uh, Foster and I wrote these three songs. So we played them the tape, and they, Cliff and Glenn loved two of the three. Mm. And one of them was to be Who's Holding Donna Now. Mm. But at the time... That was right when Elle showed up to sing another song. And when Elle came in, we were playing the, the track with the guide melody on Who's Holding Donna Now, and Elle says, I love that, man. Let's record Ooh. that song. And Cliff and, and uh, Glenn are going, no, man, we want that tune. I said, hey, my artist wants to sing it. Uh-huh. If my artist wants to sing it, he's going to sing it. Uh-huh. I said, but you can have the other two. He said, well, we'll take that one. And whatever the other one they took was, was a hit for Jack Wagner. Oh, sure. And I I can't remember the name of the song. Was it All I Need, or was it something else on that album? I don't know. Okay. It's something else on that album. Okay. Jack's a great guy. I haven't seen him in years. Another guy I really liked. We used to hang out. Anyway, uh, so I had Randy Goodrum, who had written You Needed Me, you know, Randy had written a lot of country things and some pop stuff. Uh, he wrote a song called Bluer Than Blue that I really liked. Michael Johnson, right? That's right. Yeah, So Randy, song. I got Randy to move to L.A., and I said, you got to be here, man. This is where the action's happening. We met at some songwriting seminar in Arizona. David and I went up there, and Randy was the other guy, and ever since then we became pals, and that's how jar eventually happened yeah okay yeah and we've written a lot of tunes together so anyway uh i said randy you're a great lyricist here's the tune elder bars wants to record it come up with a great lyric so he leaves his pad after he finishes the lyric turns around and his wife gail says when he walks in the door his wife gail says you didn't like the lyric enough, did you? And he says, nope. And he sat down, and that's when he came up with Who's Holding Donna Now. Oh, wow. And he's fast, so I bet he got it in an hour. Wow. And then he came over 
gave us the lyric, and I said, great. Elle said, great, and we recorded it. Amazing. Do you keep great in touch track, with Elle? It, it is huh? a great track. A, that song is, that reminds me of just being a kid. I loved that song back then. Have you, do you keep in touch with Elle? Because he's had kind of a rough go. I, I don't know yeah, where he, he got, is or how he's doing He ended doing up now. in jail for a while. Yeah. I, I actually would like to find him. I don't know how to, I, I think Ray Parker knows how to find him. Probably. I was thinking about him a couple of weeks ago, and I should, I should find him and say hi. Yeah. I lost touch with him after, there was one more record and that I worked on with him on a couple of tunes, I think. And then um, I didn't, that was it, he vanished. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's rough. I uh, I I worry about him. I wonder how he's doing. I uh, I think it got ugly there for a while. It did. Yeah. Okay, I got a couple more, but I want to talk about you just for a second because we we've, we've been talking about all these other things. First of all, you, when we talked briefly the other day, you mentioned that you used to be really into magic, and I yeah. think I read somewhere that you were also really into bowling. And I yeah. want you to tell me about those things. Well. When I was 11 years old, there was a bowling alley right down the block from my house. And for some reason, I, my mom got a bowling ball through some... She was working for an ad agency. Anyway, she'd gotten this bowling ball, and it got drilled up. And I started taking interest in the game. And then I um, graduated to a heavier ball, a 14-and-a-half-pound Manhattan rubber mm-hmm. that drilled called in a fingertip style where you can get a lot more revolutions on the ball with just the tip of your fingers used to hook the ball. In any case, things um, kept going in that direction. And by the time I was 13, I averaged 201 in this league at uh, Airport Bowl, and that was big. Even averaging 200 was big in those days, really big. Yeah. So I was being protégéed by all the older guys, and I thought that I'd end up going on the pro tour. Mm. I'm still really good friends with a Hall of Famer, man, Barry Asher, who was a star in those days. And then I went to junior high school dance when I was 14, and I heard a surf band. Mm. And I was very interested out of nowhere in in music. And I bought a set of drums. And I used to hustle making money bowling. I used to bowl for money, man, when I was 12 and 13 and 14. (laughs) That's how I made. And I was smart enough to only bowl guys I could beat. Uh So... I, what I what we called it is I'd fish them in. I'd let them win a game. Whenever I thought they were about to quit, I'd start letting them win a little bit. Uh-huh. I would dump, what's called That's... dumping, but I, I would just miss the pocket enough not to carry, or I would intentionally try to throw it through the nose and leave a wide-open split that was impossible. Uh-huh. And to pick up, and so that's how that happened. That's and what the pool sharks do too. Is the same, oh, of you course. know. It's this. It's the. It's the game, you know. Yeah, it's the game. It's yeah. part of the game. Yeah. But I mean, I'm 12 years old doing. That's that. crazy. Crazy. <laughs> Do you remember a, a show called The Real McCoys? Yeah. <laughs> okay, Little Luke, the kid that played Little Luke. Uh-huh. <laughs> he was a bowler, and he used to come down to Magnolia Bowl on Wednesdays with his $20 allowance, and I'd pretty much take all of that. Wow. <laughs> 
Also, I would keep score for bowling leagues every night for six hours, making a dollar an hour. Wow. So that's how I saved up to practice. That's so when I discovered first the drums, and then I put a band together in junior high, and then when the guys uh, came over to, uh, uh, I found some guys, some guitar players, two of them, and they came over to my house to jam, and we played surf tunes. Well, they left their guitars that night because we, we had so much fun we were going to play the next day. I picked up one of the guitars, and I figured out how to play every song we played that day. Mm. And I go, I want to play guitar. Mm -hmm. So I hustled up some more money bowling and traded the drums in and bought a Stratocaster for like 350 bucks. And that was big bucks then. Maybe it was two fifty. And then I, my dad, and uh, bought me an amp. But I had to pay for some of it, and that's how it began. That's where wow. that. But then when I was thirty, I decided I wanted to start practicing bowling because I was producing then full time or mm -hmm. a little later than that. And so I was practicing ten games a day before I'd work in the studio at night. So then I got real good again because I was, you know, practicing. Mm -hmm. You know, and I bowled in, in leagues. I bowled for money here and there, not much, uh, only when I knew I could beat the guys, you sure. know. Sure, uh-huh. And um, uh, bowled in leagues for, for years. I ended up having the highest book average in the Valley one year. Wow. But that's not because I was the best bowler. That's because a lot of the really good guys would bowl in a house that was very difficult to average in the 190s instead of in the 200s, that would give them handicap in tournaments to make it easier for them to win big tournaments. So anyway, then I, right. I then seven years later, one night, I was bowling in the league, and I twisted a neck muscle, Ooh. and the pain was insane for three months, and oh. I never picked up the ball again. Whoa! But I still watch it. And I still, you know, keep in contact with my buddy Barry Asher and a guy named Mike Fagan, who was on the tour for the last ten years until about three years ago when he went back to school to get his masters, and now he's running a chain of bowling alleys back east. Fascinating. They're doing real well. Fascinating. Wow. Yeah. What and about magic? magic? Yeah. Okay. Nineteen ninety. In a restaurant, and a magician was, you know, going strolling from table to table doing magic. So I immediately got interested, and I said, uh -huh. What do I need to do to learn how to do card magic? He says, You get a book called The Royal Road to Card Magic, hmm. and you study it, and come back, and if you can show me a few of the tricks, you know, show me that you learned, I can teach you stuff. Well, that was the beginning of that. I auditioned for the Magic Castle shortly thereafter, and then I started hanging out with a bunch of magicians. Wild. And magicians don't share like musicians share. I believe In other it. words, if you want to know how I played a lick, I'll show you. You yeah. know, you play it for me, what I played on the record, and I'll show you how I did it. Okay? I mean, I'll mm -hmm. listen to it, and I'll, f I'll figure out, okay, it's, I know I know how I did that. Right, and then I'll show you. But if you, that doesn't happen in magic, nobody gives up their secrets. Right, except for guys you really get close to, 
And there's a guy named Steve Valentine who was on a TV show for years as like a third or fourth player. I can't remember the name of the show. But also did real good getting um, commercials and small movie parts. Huh. And he was my teacher, and he was excellent. He is an excellent magician. Huh. So I was practicing 10 hours a day. I did this for about four years. Then I got up one day and I go, what the hell am I doing? <laughs> Why am I doing this? So I said, if I'm going to waste all this time practicing, why aren't I practicing guitar? Right. You know, so that was it. F and Fascinating. I can That's remember wild. about five tricks, but I'm so rusty when I do them. It's like, talk about something you need to practice, man. Yeah. This stuff, this is hard stuff. Wild. Yeah. Wild. You're, you seem like, I mean, obviously, I guess you've built your life around pursuing anything that interests you. I mean, some, you know, the rest of us think about structure and stability and health insurance and salaries and kids and whatever. Not that you didn't think about those things too, but you followed a muse your whole life and you're like a legend because of it. I, I just think some of us who are regular people are so envious of hyper-creative experts like you who just you know found the thing found a few things they were good at in this world and pursued them and were successful at it it's a miracle it's a gift you yeah. don't know it it's a gift you have to hone each time you know i just i'm an a-type personality i get interested in something i've got to know everything about it yeah you know yeah. and that's there's another thing that I want to do. I'm going to do a podcast eventually. You should, when man. You've got. I, I know you have so many stories. Uh, not only that, I, I can teach mm. technical stuff for recording. When I, Craig Anderton and I were going to write a book on recording, but it was right in the middle of the change from analog to digital. Mm -hmm. Okay, Craig Anderton is the genius cat editor always have had articles in magazines and has been editor of magazines. He's the go-to guy for reviews of equipment and all this, and he's uh, brilliant, okay? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So he talked me into doing this book. I said, I'll only do it if you do it with me. Mm. He saw me posting on a site and realized I knew what I was doing. So I wrote about literally 3,000 pages, mm. but it got dated right away. Yeah. When it was switched over to digital, and I just got disinterested and didn't want to start over. But we had a bunch of stuff that ended up in articles. Mm. And here's, here's a funny one for you. <laughs> one of the articles got uh, called Bass in the Studio got nominated for what's called a Maggie. Mm. And that's like the Grammys of magazine articles. And there was five, you know, five nominations and a winner, and it could be from any kind of article on anything in any magazine, you know. Oh. And we were nominated. Wow. For we didn't win, but um, I thought oh. that was pretty funny. That's wild. No way. Um, okay, just a couple more. I I feel like we should talk about your. You know, you're, we've talked about all these people you've aligned yourself with, like Foster and everybody else. We should probably talk about Richard Page. I mean, he's, you know, most people know him from Mr. Mister, but he was, my understanding, is right there with the rest of you guys as, you know, key session people of that era. The two of you bro wrote a song, another Owl song that I love, Across the Midnight Sky. 
you know, how are you still buddies with Richard? What's he doing? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, Rich had the gig with Ringo until recently. He quit for some reason. Mm. Um, that's Luke's on that gig too. That gig pays too good, man. Oh, nice. One of the last paying gigs. That and the McCartney's gig. But anyway, um, I produced the third album. The, the first two albums of uh, Pages mm-hmm. were produced by uh, somebody else, and I loved those records, man. They were really musical, and they're exactly like me. Yeah. These guys' musicality were in the same boat. Okay, mm-hmm. so they wanted me to produce the third album, which I did, and it's just too musical. It's just too hip for the room, man. I could see that. You know, and, yeah. and Rich is a, such a great singer and Slug, mm-hmm. such a great keyboard player and singer. Mm. And Slug's another one of those guys with perfect pitch. Yeah. And um, great guys, man, and. Actually, it was David and I that got Rich busy as a background singer in the studio. Oh, really? Huh. Yeah. Okay. And then, and then we, you know, we, we got them together with Champlin, and um, I had them sing backgrounds uh, along with a couple of black chicks that were really good, uh, Nettie Gloud and Carmen Twilly. You know, that, so Rich was busy, and Slug could have been more busy as a background singer. You know the song For You, um, Dan Warwick? Yeah, yeah. Okay, that's Rich and Slug singing the background parts really? on that tune. It's just excellent, man. Huh. Don't you see how I stare when you walk by? Can't you see? John Bettis wrote that that's on the Dion Warwick album friends in love and it and what bums me is that album should have really done well yeah. that's her one of her best records ever yeah and I busted my ass getting her to sound great and the albums didn't do well and so that's what happens sometimes it sucks and it was so it you know it sounds just like the other high quality music that was coming out of that era. There's no reason right. that one shouldn't have been a hit too, you know. It should have. Yeah. Yeah. And that was Clive Davis, man, who can pull any miracle he wants. Right. Yeah, true. But um, it wasn't destined to be, so that's then too bad. Rich and Slug did Mr. Mr. and then the rest was history and yeah. they had their run. And Rich is kind of like me, man. He does what he wants, when he wants to do it. Interesting. You know, he saved enough bread, and, um, you know. Good. 
Wild. Yeah, he. Yeah. Uh, I. I. He. It feels like he doesn't step back out in the spot. Now I haven't seen one of the Ringo shows, but other than that, it seems like he prefers to stay kind of in the shadows a little bit. You know. Yeah. Doesn't do a lot of interviews. Doesn't get out there much. No. He just. Mm. He. He's just. He's um, a homebody man, kind of yeah. like me. Okay. Okay. Yeah. All right. I'm gonna. I got some more things here on my list. Donna Summer, Bad Girls. Yes. Um, oh. Omardian was producing her, and I said, mm-hmm. let's write some tunes for her, which we did. And um, we wrote them with Donna in the studio and banged them out. And nice. we, um, and then that was that record. Okay. Didn't you, I think Joe Esposito co-wrote Bad Girls, and you played on some Brooklyn Dreams albums. Okay, again. Bad Girls, that's... There's one guitar part I played on one of her albums that I got real creative with mm. that was the key to the song. Hmm. I don't know which song it is, but... I don't either. Um, I more know the hits. I don't know if I know the deep tracks. I'll listen for it, though. Okay. Yeah, I got a... And MacArthur Park, uh, Greg Matheson arranged for her, and I played on that, and uh, that's a whole story within itself for I Greg. Know. Yeah. He had like five days to do everything, and he didn't sleep for five days, literally. <laughs> yeah, it, it could have killed him, man. I that believe was it. Like, you know, yeah. Giorgio said, "If you don't do it in five days, I'll get somebody else." Uh-huh. <laughs> it really was next to impossible to do a seventeen-minute song with strings and horns with all the different sections in five days. That's insanity. I believe it. I believe yeah. it. Yeah. Um, Donna okay. was great, by the way. Great Good. chick. Yeah. Seems like a super nice lady. I miss her. Right. Um, Candy Staten, Young Hearts Run Free. Sylvester Rivers is Ray Parker's, one of Ray Parker's closest friends from childhood. We call him the professor. He's a very knowledgeable guy. Mm. And um, a great guy. And very talented. And he arranged the Candy Staten record. Mm. And he wrote sparse parts, and which I, what I liked about the parts he wrote was that when they're sparse, they're hooky. You know, they're memorable. Mm-hmm. He didn't mm-hmm. overwrite. I always liked that about him. He didn't overarrange. It wasn't crowded, you know? Yeah. And so that's why I mean, you know, he's like, he's another close friend. So Interesting. That's why I remember the Candy State and stuff. Okay. And um, I know we're getting screwed on some movie where the end theme goes on and on and on. It's one of her tunes. Oh, really? And we never got a reuse on it. Oh. And I got to remind Sylvester to, that he's got to get on that. It was on the soundtrack to a movie called 54. They made this really That's terrible it. movie about Famous Studio 54. Movie. Yeah. And uh, I have the soundtrack, which is fantastic, and it's on there. But that sucks if you didn't get paid on that. Um, we got paid originally, but we didn't get paid for that use. Right, you right. Know? Yep. Um, one of the guys by Shalimar. Do you remember this? I got all? called to. Yeah, the singer is really good. Howard Hewitt. Howard Hewitt, really yeah. good. Yeah. I have no idea what happened to him. Really a nice cat, and the the tune's real simple. Mm-hmm. And um, that was one of the first roles for that chick that became a famous actress. 
There, well, there was, um, well, that's one of my favorite movies. Just one of the guys. Her name was Joyce Heiser, and she actually didn't do much else after that. But there were other people in there, like Sherilyn Fenn, who went on to be really famous. Anyway, yeah, I that's thought, a great movie. I thought that was the chick that is in Black Black Dahlia. Is that what you're talking about? Black Dahlia. Black Dahlia. Yeah. Who's the chick in that? Right. That's the... Wasn't it Scarlett Johansson? Yeah, not but the bad girl, the bad yeah, girl. Who was the bad? Now I'm gonna have to look this up. I the don't. The dark-haired girl. I thought that was the same chick that was in one of the guys. Um, but I'm wrong. But I'm obviously wrong. Well, the... whoever the star is, I'm thinking that was the same chick. But I'm obviously wrong. Yeah, it. Um, I so... never looked it up. Uh, let's see. Josh Hartnett, Aaron Eckhart, Scarlett Johansson, Hillary Swank. That's it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Not no, she. Sure. No, she was in something else. Just one of the guys. Uh, nobody really got too huge from that movie, but I, that's one of my favorites. Anyway, there, um, here's a story about that movie. Yeah. I remember they gave me the soundtrack. They gave me the a copy of the film to watch, and um, so I could get an idea of. Then they already had the song. The song was very simple. Uh -huh. There wasn't much I could do with it. But anyway. Uh, they gave me the movie, and the final scene wasn't in there on purpose. Nice. I get it. I get why. I get right. why. You know. Yeah. Now we have the internet. We can pull that picture up anytime we want. But back then, right. yes, I get it. Okay. Right. Yeah. Uh, she was uh, Bruce Springsteen's girlfriend uh, right around that time, by the way. Really? She, yeah, she By was. the way... By the way, um, regarding the film noir stuff, a good friend of mine has a show on Turner Classic Movies that's on Saturday nights at 10 o'clock, depending on what time zone you're in, and it's called Noir Alley. Ooh. And Eddie Muller, very bright guy, and great backstories. Okay. He's the star of noir, and when I got into film noir like 20-plus years ago, um, I went on the hunt to find a copy of every movie ever made in that genre. Ooh. And I used to go to the Film uh, Noir Festival every year that Eddie hosted with another nice. guy named Alan K. Rohde. And both those guys uh, know the history of noir like you wouldn't believe. Wild. Wild. Yeah. Okay. It's, good to know. It's a good show. I'll check yeah. it out. Um, There's some great movies, man, made in the 40s, man. Oh, Great. out of the past. What, probably yeah, that's one. Yeah. That's a yep. classic. It is. Yeah. Yeah. There's there's a lot of them, and yeah. the, there's probably there's over three hundred. And the job of the film noir, um, uh, whatever it is, is uh, it's nonprofit, and they find prints. Like there's movies that are thought to have that have thought to have been gone, never mm. a copy to be found. Well, they found them. They wow. found. A lot, and they get them restored. And um, I actually was going to do the restoration on a soundtrack to one of them, but Ooh. it was going to take me too long. I was going to do it for free for them, huh. but since I don't have the best tools there is yeah. to do that, they said, "No, nah, it's going to take too take it too long. We have to release it before that." Blah blah blah. Huh? Interesting. But, yeah, I did seven minutes for an experiment, and I learn how to denoise real well but 
there's this one tool, one tool you need that's like thirty grand, oh. and I'm thinking I don't want to do this for a living, man. I'm not going to buy that thing, right? <laughs> you know, to do a freebie, right. right? Right, right. Of course, yeah, that's a right. big investment. Yeah. Um, okay, what about the Osmonds? Do you remember anything about the Osmonds? I did an album with Donnie that Donnie funded that never came out. Oh. It's a long story. We got screwed. And Donnie is one of the best singers I've ever worked with. One of Good. the nicest guys you'd ever want to know. Good. I grew up Mormon. Yeah. So the Osmonds are like our Kennedys or something. You I know. know. Yeah. I know that. My yeah. brother's Mormon. So oh. my brother's married into Mormonness. Okay. Mormon yep. Okay. And, and I got to tell you, man, the Mormons in general... If I'm going to pick out an in general religious group of people, they're the nicest. They, we try to be. Well, you are. <laughs> Good. You know. That's the idea. Yeah. 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 Right. I know that the, I mean, I as I've gotten older, some of the beliefs are not my jam anymore. But <laughs> <laughs> but culturally, I really what, appreciate polygamy? where I came from. You're well, not that, polygamy? <laughs> not it. I not am. <laughs> <laughs> Now, if they only brought that back, maybe I'd be more into it again. No, no, no I just, I'm, you know, I'm kidding about the polygamy course, thing. I mean, course. I, you know, I look, I, because of my brother telling me the stories, yeah. you know, I know the history big time, you know. Right, right. But Yeah, um, you have to believe in a lot of that stuff to believe it all. And, and there's some holes there for me. But, but I, uh, I love the culture and I love that it's where I came from. And I still carry with me all those, you know ideals and morals and stuff absolutely well it's got a good foundation i'll tell you that it does yep okay yeah i wondered what it was like working with the osmonds um yeah donnie's great man and good. you know and i played on the some other osmond stuff and no man donnie's a, he's a great guy man good you know and i said have you ever been juiced did you ever did you ever drink he says i was working vegas and some I wanted, I needed some water, and some chick in the first row said, "I need water," and they she gave him a, a cup of something, and it was straight vodka, and he <laughs> slammed it before he, you know before it was too late to stop. I mean, uh -huh. he must have gotten a little bit of a buzz. I'm sure he did. Yeah. I told I told Donnie I said, "You need to grow a mustache." He says, "Then I look Mexican." I go, "So what?" <laughs> I said. Grow a mustache, and we're going to intentionally get you busted for for weed. <laughs> That's great. It's the only way we can save your image, man. Hilarious. That is great. <laughs> yeah. Okay. It was okay. All a joke, obviously. I believe it. Sure. Okay. Yeah, I think joke. I got one more for you. I are you you're playing guitar on "I Want You to Want Me" from Cheap Trick, right?
Yeah. The album I, I, version, I, I, which... I didn't, I don't, you know, I, like I say, I taught... Oh, I didn't tell you the story. No. I was telling I it the I, other day. I think I heard this story on an interview on YouTube or something like that, but tell me anyway, because Rick well, Nielsen uh, should have played his own guitar, but you did it. Right. Um, you know, ghosting was something... Like, for example, Rittenauer ghosted on the Dark Side of the Moon album, you know. Mm, and I didn't when know that. he did, the, he told the producer, he said, am I, Rittenauer says, am I going to get credit? And the producer says, no, mm. but you're going to get paid real well. And Rittenauer said, fine. Mm. Then when it got uh, came out on CD, I think he was credited. Okay. But, you know, I mean, what? A guitar part is going to make a difference on, uh, you know, it's all about the singer, you know. Sure, it is. But, and this, uh, with Cheap Trick, um, I can't remember the producer's name, really nice cat, and I must have worked for him before, and he brought me in to ghost on it, and Ricky Nielsen wanted to learn the solo. So mm. um, I said... You've got a 15-minute time slot on such and such day where I'm going to be at Wally Hyder's, and it will be right when the lunch break starts at 1 o'clock, <laughs> and bring a cassette, and let me hear it, and I'll just quickly show you where I played what, you know, because when uh -huh. I hear it, I'll remember where I played it, where it lays on the guitar. Uh -huh. And then I said, we're going to go to lunch. So then we went to a, a place for lunch down the block that, let's say, was mobbed up. Mm -hmm. And he always wore that baseball hat, right? Mm -hmm. So he looks like Hans Hall. Right. So we walk in, and the maitre d' says, take your hat off. And Ricky says, no, with an attitude. Uh -huh. Maitre d' says, take your hat off. And Ricky says, no. And finally, um, the Mater D is starting to cop a big attitude. And like mm -hmm. I say, this isn't a place to have a big attitude. And I immediately told Ricky, do what he's telling you to do. <laughs> then Ricky says, I wear it for medical reasons. <laughs> now, maybe that's true. I don't know. Right? right? It's a, a distinct possibility. Really? So the guy let him in. And... <laughs> I didn't ask Ricky. I didn't. It's none of my business, so I didn't ask. But okay. you know, we had a good lunch. And that was the only time I ever spent with him. Nice oh, guy. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That. I mean. He, I mean, you know, this. That song's great, but it didn't really come to life until the live at Budokan version, which isn't you. But I. That is an odd thing that you would need to. You would come in and ghost for someone like Rick Nelson, who didn't doesn't need that necessarily. Uh, yeah, I, I, did I say Nelson? Nielsen, yeah. who, uh, you know, he's a legend in his own right. That's Yeah. Wild. Yeah. Yeah, okay. hey, man, look, you know, I mean, I I thought nothing of it. You know, just another date, you know. Yeah, yeah. What do you want? I'm, One more I'm thing. paid. I get paid to play. Yeah, yeah. You know, so. Yeah. All right, yeah. well, I think we've covered, man, I, I this, thank you. I, I, uh, no problem. This was a blast. I do want, I am curious. Let's talk for two seconds about your, I mean, you're kind of famous for being a little OCD. It's a quarter to four in the morning, my time right now. And right. Uh, of course, Lukather tells that funny story about you got to take all your clothes off every time you take a crap. <laughs> I don't know if that's true or not, but you I'm obviously... an open book. I need freedom. Okay. 
That's okay. not so much of an OCD thing as I just want to be freedom. My okay. OCD thing is I wear gloves when I go to... I don't... Uh, I got some kind of strange neurological problem that showed up about 10 years ago. And after eight doctors and 10 years of every possible test, every possible treatment, nothing, nobody knows what's wrong with me. Huh. It's an ongoing problem. Uh, look, I'm fully functional. Sure. You know, I also had five operations in the last seven years. Busted my elbow, my right elbow in half. I had an emergency appendectomy that was botched, and I got a bad infection. I had three hernia operations, and I was radiated for prostate cancer, and I beat it just with Whoa. radiation. Wow. I've got the lowest PSA my doctor's ever seen after radiation. Huh. So I'm fully functional, and even though I got this weird neuro thing, whatever, if I get sick, I get exponentially sick. So I started wearing nitrile gloves, and when I go to Costco or whatever, um, I wipe off the carts with uh, alcohol wipes. I don't, if somebody sneezes, I run, oh. you know, I yeah. can't get sick. If I yeah. get sick, I get really sick. Wild. So I don't go out much, you know, I yeah. go out, you know, I exercise at home, you know, so, I don't, I used to run and power walk outside, but uh, now that I'm old with osteoporosis, if I fall, I break things. Right, right. So I'm done doing that, and when I run through my house uh, or the elliptical machine, if I'm running through the house, which I do, huh. um, you know, I get in 15,000 steps and keep moving. If I fall, it's on carpet, so I'm not going to crunch up like a fucking um, right. potato chip. Right, right. You know? So, it wasn't always this way? This is stuff that's kind of been coming at you the last few years, it sounds like? No, I mean, a little, it happened a little by little over time. Huh. Nobody huh. wants to get sick. Right. You know, when I, when I get sick, that's it for the recording studio for at least two weeks. Hmm. My ears are going to get plugged up. Yeah. And, you know, even the remnants, in a good situation, it's two weeks. So it's a waste of two weeks. Plus, when I feel bad, I'm not, I don't want to do anything that has to do with music. Music is horrible when I don't feel good. I could see that, yeah. So where's the, is, is all of this not logical? Right, why oh, absolutely, it, yeah. Why isn't everybody like this? Right, right. Well, they're not laughing at me now, are they? <laughs> That's so true. <laughs> so true. Everyone's caught up with you these days. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I talked, when, I, when I'd go to Costco once a week, um, I would tell the cashiers, I go, you know, you know how many people take a shit and don't wash their hands? Oh, I don't That money they're that. giving you all day long? Oh. I guarantee you, if there was a, a lab technician here, you're going to find shit on a lot of that money. So why would you want to touch it with your hands and then touch it? And also, you know, whatever viruses or whatever are on it. And half the people at the Van Nuys Costco now wear gloves at the cash wow. register before this problem happened. Yeah. They do have it over and over, and I'd preach over and over. I believe it. And then they finally started doing it. Yeah. Do you have a bidet at home? No. Oh. I thought you'd be all over a bidet. No, man. Huh. No. Okay. Hey, look. Germaphobes and, and you know, everybody's got their groove. 
Sure. Then all of a sudden I might do something that you think is not germaphobe-like. Huh. I mean, I'm not like OCD like OCD. I don't have to go around straightening up carpets to make them match exactly. <laughs> all that, okay. Yeah, no, that's like, that's out there, man. I'm yeah. a germaphobe. Got it, okay. For, for a very logical reason. Sure. I don't yeah. like to be sick. Yeah, it makes sense. <laughs> Total sense. All right. Yeah. Well, uh, All right, John. Jay, you're a legend. Thank you. I, I can't believe Thank you did you. this. This was just above and beyond. I will let you know when this comes out. As I said, we're going to clean it up. We're going to insert songs and stuff like sure. that. If you feel like sharing it with your fans or put it on your website or whatever, it feel just free. Just tell Kirsten it's done and she'll put it up. Cool. We will. By the way, man, you know, there's something that um, uh, I got to say. The, you know, I've been known to treat um, the garbage man as nice as I treat the record company president. Mm. Everybody's the same <laughs> right. to me. I don't, you know, everybody's a human, man, you know? Yeah. yeah. I mean, just because you're a garbage man or whatever, I don't see you in any different light, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. it, when, they, when my ex-manager said that, I said, no, I treat the garbage man better than the record company mm. president. Mm. You know? Sense. Yeah. It's just like, man, everybody, you know, you should be, everybody should be nice to, to everybody else, you know? Yeah. I mean, if, if there's a bad person, it's a bad person. But other than that, no, man, I, I treat everybody with respect. Well, I appreciate it so much. I've been, I started this podcast about five years ago because I just wanted to hear stories like this. And, you know, at the time, it seemed like there weren't that many out there. And I thought, well, I'll do it. And um, it's been amazing who has been willing to talk to me. Some of my favorite producers or songwriters or rock stars or whatever. And But you never know. You know, we we're, I'm a regular guy. We think you guys all live in, like, palaces and, you know, have guards and protect yourselves, you know, your well, life. That's and your... Part, that's true. Yeah, well, some of it is, yeah. You know, yeah. so it's to me, it's just still a miracle whenever a hero of mine like you're like you will talk to me for a couple hours and share yeah, the man, stories. That has nothing to do with the pa the house and the and the, and the you know, and, and guards and whatever it has nothing to do yeah. with that. Yeah, that's yeah. another that's another thing. That's just a but, you know, man, I mean, most of those guys are regular. So like, if, if people are bothered all the time with, you know, autographs and whatever, I mean, mm -hmm. I get that. But uh, the older they get, they should realize they should really, this is part of being somebody successful. That's true. I'm of the uh, success that oh, if I'm going places, people don't know who I am. Mm -hmm. So I don't have to worry about that, you know, for the, yeah. unless it's a concert or something. And I'm, I'm nice to everybody, man. It's just only, that's part of being successful is you if people give people a minute of your time what do you right. care right you know well, i appreciate it i appreciate it and it's i mean the right thing a, to do man i love it and uh yeah the fact that you've shared these stories with me for two plus hours i i'll i love it no Thank problem you, thanks so much man here you have it jay graden wasn't that fun <laughs> jay is one of a kind i love that guy wouldn't you love to be sitting at a table having dinner with him and Lukather and Ray Parker Jr. and all of them just talking about stories? Wouldn't you? I would pay money to experience that. Anyway, thank you, Jay.
I wanted to close it out with another song off that Airplay album. This is Crying All Night. That Airplay album is so good. The band that he did with uh, with David Foster. And if you haven't seen the David Foster documentary on Netflix, I recommend it. It's really good. I saw it. I, I did this interview before I saw the movie. I wish I'd been the other way around. I could have asked Jay more questions about David Foster. He's a trip, that guy. And I have to say a huge thanks to BJ Cramp of the Rock and or Roll podcast for helping me get in touch with Jay. I had wanted to have Jay on here for years, and BJ helped make that happen. So thanks, BJ. Now, next week, we're keeping this kind of a conversation going. Next week is uh, Wadi Wachtel of the immediate family. I, I would imagine very much a cohort there of Jay. They were both you know, first call session guys throughout the seven in LA in the seventies and eighties. So anyway, we're going to hear more stories like this next week from Wadi Wachtel. Huge thanks as always to Jan, the man, Makevich, my right hand man. Thank you, buddy, for everything that you do and for putting these great episodes together. Uh, you guys know how to find us by now. You can find us on Facebook and you can like our page. You can send us a message on there. You can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com or you can find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. And there is likely, I believe, if schedules work out, likely going to be a deep dive coming out this weekend that is somebody who came up in the conversation we just had with Jay. So uh, you'll want to come back and see who that is. All right? All right. Thanks, everybody. We love you.